Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter, and today our special guest is Brian Burness from the Leadership Institute to discuss how the left maintains control of campus politics. This is the Influence Watch podcast. When most college students pay their tuition bill, they see a line item for mandatory student fees. While each student may not pay much, the combined fees from all students can add up to a massive sum, and that money goes toward campus organizations that can engage powerfully in political activism. According to an expose on student fees at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that was done by the Leadership Institute's campusreform.org news site, Students at that school are expected to pay over $50 million in student fees in 2018. While the fees at public universities can't go to explicitly political groups, such as college Republicans or Democrats, they can go to heavily politicized advocacy groups, such as socialist, feminist, or racial or ethnic identity groups. Campus reform found that at UW-Madison, left-leaning groups received 20 times the funding of right-leaning groups. Well, Brian, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. And I should say that our uh, regular co-host here, Michael Watson, still on paternity leave, uh, upsetting the environmentalists by adding more human (laughs) beings to the earth. Uh, And we are here, as usual, in our Leadership Institute studios that we uh, are happy to use. And it's great to have you from Leadership Institute. Tell us a little bit about LI uh, and what LI has done on the student fee issue. Sure. So one of the programs that, you know, we run is we an outreach initiative to conservative college students. We, we do several trainings and several organizational things to help them uh, form student uh, government or student groups on their chapters when whatever, you know, ideas, you know, supports that they believe in. So, for example, we support pro-life groups, pro-gun groups, Young Americans for Liberty groups, you know, everything in the conservative you know spectrum, if you will. Uh, you know, we have other products training. And then we also, as you, you know, cited, has campus reform. That is the new site for these groups, because one of the things that we've noticed over the years was the, the all the bias, you know, in ways these universities try to intimidate, indoctrinate, you know, and shut down conservative groups on college campuses. And there, there needed an outlet to do that. And that's why campus reform uh, is there. But a, a common reoccurring theme is these groups complaining that universities won't uh, officially recognize them or you know give them equal funding and that's kind of what you see here just in general i think a lot of these students are complaining about the overall cost of higher education and how high some of these student fees are and in many cases they're forced to pay into a mandatory fee that supports things they don't believe in sure well how how big of an issue is this nationwide do we have a rough idea of how much money is going into these student fees from millions of college students you know, because we have so many different colleges out there and there's private colleges and there's public colleges and each one and each system, you know, acts differently. It's really hard to, to put an exact figure, you know, on the student fee problem. But you're talking about millions. I mean, in one school alone, you're talking about 20 million dollars, you know, in fees. And if you just times that out by the more than 2000, you know, colleges we have in this country, you can see how, pro- how, how large scale this is. It sounds like it's probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. Yeah. You know, it is. Which if you if one were going to set up a political movement and knew that you would have access to hundreds of millions of dollars, you might be fairly confident about the capacity of that large movement. 
Uh, you know, and one of the things is it's not that, you know, conservative student groups don't get any funding. There are certainly, you know, universities that allow these groups to have funding. But in the vast majority, you know, of college camps out there, conservatives are the minority on college campuses. And in many cases, these the student some of it, some or most of the student funding decisions are made by the student governments, which are usually run by progressive or liberal students. And as a result, these conservative groups are treated unfairly. And it's hard to build a majority on campus or get your message out and find others like you if you're if you're being censored or denied access to the same funding as the other side has. Sure. Well, how did the student fees start? I mean, was there a legitimate reason to uh, to create the student fees as part of uh, kids tuition bills? Well, I mean, I think like, you know, anything, you know, any other thing you join in life, whether you join a gym or a cell phone, there's always a hidden fee or a tax, you know, or something else. Let's let's be honest what these student fees are. In some ways, they're a tax on these students. Uh, and as universities grew and expanded, and in some case, you know, not always for the good, I think one thing we've seen, you know, at Campus Reform and others is universities nowadays seem to be more into the lifestyle experience or entertainment than they are in education. And you've got to fund that somehow to build the lazy rivers and the rock climbing walls and the latest, you know, dorm things that has to be funded. And this is a way to do it through a mandatory student fee. But the real question I think we as students, parents and taxpayers, you know, might have to start looking into is how is this money being spent? And is it really going to advance the purpose of higher education and prepare these um, students for jobs in the real world? That seems like a fair uh, question, especially since what you're really saying is, what return are you going to get on your $100,000, $200,000, investment uh, in college education? Right. And, I, and, you know, one of the things I think that this problem has gotten so bad over the years or these, these fees have hiked up so much is because for the average student, you know, that just comes out of high school, what is the difference if you're paying $20,000 a year, you know, in, in tuition or 50000 e Either way, it's an unsurmountable debt that you're not used to. And, the, you know, you have a student loan or a grant or something else that's going to cover it. And the thing is, well, I'll worry about this four years from now. Well, four years later, that couple thousand dollars is now $100,000. And if you're $100,000 in debt, what is a $1,000 here or there? And that's how they're how they're doing this. But so I do think there is we, we have to start looking at, you know, college in terms of what career path does, you know, does a student want to go down? And when they graduate, what income can they expect to make? And in some decisions, maybe that decides whether they go to college A or college B, because if you're only going to make $40,000 a year, a year in your chosen field, how are you ever going to pay off $100,000 in debt over the year and then still do all the things that these kids are going to want to do as adults, get possibly get married, have a house, save for retirement, all those other costs? Yeah, well, uh, what is, uh, let's talk about some of the specific groups um, that are getting uh, a little fat off okay. of these student fees that, as you say, the average student, when he sees his itemized bill, uh, you know, this is probably less than he's spending for books, so it may not even much less less than he's spending for tuition, so it may not seem that big of a deal, or to a parent who's looking at that same bill and, and groaning, it's it's not a very big part of it, uh, but it might be one of the least justified parts of it. So uh, some of the groups uh, that the study that College Reform sure. did uh, noted were things like uh, sex out loud. Uh, what can you tell us about that? 
You know, this is one of, there, there are a lot of things that happen at college, you know, campuses like Sex Out Loud, a number of universities do things that they call, you know, sex weeks. Um, you know, there's a lot of programming that comes out of the LBGTQ centers or designed to make, you know, sexual identity, you know, uh, more inclusive on campus. But, the, you know, this is one where, you know, they have, they, they will take a small amount, a couple of dollars here or there. In this case, I think it was somewhere around $77,000, you know, for programming. And it varies from campus to campus, but some of them have sex toy parties or safe sex practices or bring strippers or other people, you know, um, to the campus to give their perspective on society, you know, and, and things like that. But the real question, you know, again, it goes back to is I, I'm not sure exactly how a program like this helps prepare, you know, people uh, for the real, you know, the real world. I, it seems like this is another example of universities now are more into catering to, you know, the students need and they're more interested in preparing students for the bedroom than the boardroom. And I, and I don't know that that's what, you know, you or I or any other parent out there sends their kid to college to, you know, to learn. Yes. And it, one also wonders, is it really necessary? Does it take a $77,000 subsidy from student fees um, to get college students to talk about sex? I, I suspect not. Right. Uh, you could probably do that for a little less. Um, another group that uh, receiving money, even more money than that, uh, apparently, um, was the university's chapter of MECHA. And I'm not sure how they pronounce the, the acronym itself, M-E-C-H-A. Uh, but it's a uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aztlan. Uh, and that sounds like a more overtly political uh, group that's getting lots of money. Yeah, I would say this is, a, you know, a, a, you know, a more progressive group. It, you know, it, it's it's probably funded through a diversity center like that. It does represent in many cases, you know, a diversity group, you know, on college campuses. But you then have to look into the type of programming they're doing. If you, you know, a quick glance at this at this group's, you know, uh, Facebook page will tell you that they hosted, a, you know, an event called, you know, Men Are Trash. And, you know, and how being male is bad on campus or they, you know, they're very big supporters at some universities of the DREAM Act, you know, and this is part of the groups that, you know, are, are attacking ICE agents on campus or banning ICE from campus or, you know, th things of that nature. Uh, and, and so there there are some questionable things and whether or not this should be even funded, especially when it happens at a state funded university. Yes, I, I noticed in this case, uh, the Mecha, one of their uh, gripes was that at Halloween time, um, they said that a mere law enforcement costume was intimidating, and they and they objected to that. Sure, I mean, and, and this has been going on in college campuses for a while as part of the culture war, the political correctness movement. You know, um, it, everybody's offended whether it's you know a law enforcement costume or you know a costume of a nun or religious figure or a Native American Indian, you know, things like that. Um, and it seems like we have this disturbing trend, you know, on college campuses developing that. Your right as a student or as a human not to be offended is more important than a free speech right of somebody else. I don't know how, again, that translates in the real world because there are things that I experience every single day, watching TV, listening to radio, walking down the street that offend me. And it's not like I'm calling up ABC or NBC and saying that we have to remove all those hosts from the show because I was offended, you know, by something that I don't know how you can, you know, exercise your free speech in this society and say what you believe and not offend somebody. So, yes. And as you say, the, uh, uh, lots of people will get out in the, the real world, the business world, outside of college campus without deputy assistant associate deans of diversity uh, and discover that people don't care too much whether they were offended by somebody else who happened to disagree with them. Right. 
The uh, well, speak, speaking of the uh, campus-funded efforts to uh, divide people along ethnic and religious and racial uh, and ethnic lines, uh, the study also found uh, groups like the Queer Student Center and Feminist Student Activist Collective uh, groups, and uh, also um, uh, pure racial groups like Black or Asian American, uh, also getting this kind of funding. Yeah, I mean, th this is this is part of the new university, you know, environment where we want to celebrate diversity and, and different viewpoints, which I think is great. I mean, every college should be, we, they should stick to the true intellectual diversity and bring in multiple viewpoints on college camps or anything. I, I think the problem that we see with this, though, is that that how it's practiced in reality on a lot of ca college campuses is that we only want diversity when it agrees with our liberal or progressive agenda. And this is why over the past couple of years, you've seen these violent outbursts when conservatives come to college campus and speak, because somehow that's not part of the diversity conversation. That point can't be rep uh, be recognized on campus because it, it, fun it offends you know some of the liberal and the progressives. I think the other dangerous trend that you see in this diversity movement is that we I get, are, are saying that we're doing this in the name of inclusivity to bring everybody together, you know, and make sure that everybody's on an equal playing field. But in reality, what's happening is we have these special, you know, student centers or programs for one group based on sexual orientation, one group based on, you know, race, you know, or ethnicity. And then we see this going into almost dividing people because we're, we're pitting one group and saying it's better than the rest. And the scary thing is in some college campuses you've seen now where there are dorms that are, you know, or this single sexual orientation only dorm or this single, you know, a race only dorm. It's like we're going back to segregation. Um, and, that, and that seems to be a very disturbing trend. It's pr pretty odd that Bull Connor gets to have the last laugh uh, about segregation on campus. Um, well, the... Uh, you also have groups that are more obviously, directly, purely uh, political. Uh, the Public Interest Research Group, uh, which you can go to influencewatch.org and find out more about their history. But uh, for our listeners here, why don't you explain a bit about what they are? They don't have the, 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 the smokescreen of, oh, well, we're making up for past injustices about this particular ethnic group or, or uh, sexual orientation group, do they? No, this is a group that was, you know, founded by Ralph Nader and pro and regularly promotes progressive colleges on uh, college campuses and in many cases lobbies, you know, state legislatures for for these causes. Why this group is getting taxpayer funded, you know, money or in many cases student fees to do this, um, you know, doesn't I don't I don't know what role this plays. I, surely the group, it, you know, there are other progressive organizations or people out there that will fund it. It doesn't need to be siphoning the money off of, you know, the higher education system. And, and I think that's one question that we have to ask ourselves is why do we need all these student fees anyways? I mean, everybody is complaining about the cost of higher education and rightly so. But there is, you know, in a lot of cases you're talking about hundreds or thousands of dollars in student fees that we could eliminate if we just went back to, you know, focusing on the books and getting a degree and how to get a job in the real world rather than all these other entertainment, you know, and um, societal causes that we're, you know, doing on college campuses. Yes, it, it definitely seems odd, although to, to give... Uh to give Mr. Nader credit for his cunning, uh, I think this is probably one of the original groups designed precisely to exploit the possibility of snagging student fees uh, without anybody noticing. I, the, 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 its history goes a, a good number of years back, uh, and in, a, in a, a twisted kind of way, at least they were ingenious to think, oh, here's, here's free money 
easy free money for us. Um, and we get to both indoctrinate uh, students' thinking and we get to train activists that we can then use as foot soldiers uh, for our various political causes. Um, well, uh, there are some conservative groups uh, that receive funding from student fees as well. Is that right? Yeah. Like, like I said, when we got in the conversation, it, it's not fair to say that conservative students don't get any money. But, you know, as the minority, you know, on, on, on college campuses, I, they, they certainly aren't in as large of numbers. And I don't think it's fair to say on a lot of college campuses, these conservative groups have the same backing from the professors, the administration, um, you know, that other groups do. So there, there are groups out there. Many of them get student, you know, um, funding and many of the conservative groups that we work with that don't get conservative funding still exist. Maybe they're not officially recognized, you know, by the university, but they still hold their own meetings. They still do their own programming and they receive, you know, the funding for that from other outside groups. Either they learn to raise their own money from individuals um, or they, you know, receive, you know, help and support from groups like the Leadership Institute, Young Americans for Freedom, um, Young Americans for Liberty, Turning Point USA, a number of these groups, you know, that are active on college campuses. Uh, well, are there any other groups you want to throw out for our listeners that they should know about? I mean, there are a lot of group, you know, groups, you know, out there on college campuses that are taking place. I don't know. Um, and I think we want an environment where we want more groups. And, you know, there, there's no reason why you can't have 12 different, you know, conservative or libertarian leaning, you know, groups, you know, on a college campus. I think one of the dangerous trends that we see, though, is you, you have a climate right now where people say that, oh, Turning Point supports or is supportive of President, you know, Donald Trump. Therefore, every Turning Point member and Republican is either a racist, a bigot, or whatever else. And you see these student governments trying to pass initiatives to say they have no right to organize on campus, they have no right to student funding. And then now we're seeing the censorship or suppression of conservative speech on college campuses, which is a dangerous trend that's starting to pop up, you know, around the country that we're regularly tracking on campusreform.org. You know, that's, you mentioned earlier, uh, the intellectual diversity. I mean, it's, it's yet again, this just incredible paradox that people whose every other word is diversity and the average campus now has, you know, 10 or 20 administrators with diversity and inclusion in their official titles. Um, and yet when the most important thing that should be going on on a campus, college campus is thought, yep. the idea of diversity in thought is actually verboten. And what we want to have is a variety of sexual orientations and genders and races and ethnicities who all think the identical thoughts with no diversity there. Yeah, I mean, from an, from a, you know, institutional level, the faculty and the administrators believe in freedom of speech when it applies to them. So it's their slogan, you know, or message or mantra seems to be free speech for me, but not for thee. As soon as it crosses into something that they don't agree with, they find a way to label it a hate group, you know, or say that it's dangerous, you know, and shut it down. And I think what we really need to do is just have more dialogue on all of these, you know, topics on campus so that we are training and preparing a generation of college kids that can actually crit critically think, form their own decisions, you know, and go on into the workforce. The danger, uh, you know, that we're developing here is that the next generation of elected officials, of CEOs, you know, governors out there has been exposed throughout their entire college career to only one point of view and doesn't see both sides of the story and can't critically think, you know, and anal analyze. I mean, what is the safe space generation going to do when they go in the real world and they hear something offensive? You know, are they going to crawl under their desks? Are they going to call the HR department and, you know, try to file a trigger warning? I, I just don't know where this is going and I don't know that it's healthy. 
Yes, I, I, I have a great story from a, uh, I, I heard it from a conservative professor, but, it, but the story involves one of his left-wing colleagues. Uh, the colleague was teaching uh, an American government course, and it, the idea was that it was an American government course that was going to talk about great political controversies in the history of America. So, understandably, if you're going to talk about those controversies, you have to have some idea about, okay, well, there was a controversy over this subject, and people had different views, and what were the, let's start with what their two views were, and then we'll learn more about how it, the controversy developed. Well, so here's what the left-wing professor found. He was going to, uh, he was opening his class up, and it was going to be on abortion. Now, obviously, big controversial issue in American history. Uh, and he said, okay, well, let's first just get on the table um, what the, the two sides believe. Who here can explain to me what the pro-life view is uh, on abortion? And the room was silent. He said, no, come on, just, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you agree with it or anything, just, you know, I sure. don't agree with it, but just let's, we got to start by explaining what's, what's that side of this issue. Total silence. Apparently there wasn't a kid in the room that could, that either was new or was willing to admit he knew what that view was. So the left-wing professor uh, groaned and, and said, okay, well, here's, you know, the gist of what the, the pro-life argument would be. And he just rattles off a few simple talking points. And the girl in the front row starts weeping. And he's baffled, like, well, what's the matter? And she says, I have no idea how to respond to any of that. She was, she was not at all pro-life. She wasn't feeling guilty over some abortion that she had. She was weeping because she was utterly ignorant of what the other side of her own position might be. And she was terribly distraught that because she was so ignorant, she couldn't respond to it, then defend her own position. Now, that's a pathetic well, and I, and I would say case. that she, I think you and I can both agree she's not alone. There are probably several students like that. And the, the scary thought should be is what happens in 15, 20 years when that student is elected as a member of Congress or that student, you know, is a governor or, you know, runs for president or something like that. That is the type of person that we all want making decisions for all of us. And this is, you know, one of the ways in which I think the American higher education system is now failing, you know, our, our students. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to uh, touch on that you, you, you brought up as well, and that is this, you know, you, we've begun to hear the argument that, like, your speech, which I disagree with, hurts me because I disagree with it. I'm hurt by your speech. You've done violence to me by saying something that I disagree with. And that was puzzling to me for a while because, like, no, it's not how that's not. It isn't violence to express an idea that someone else disagrees with. I mean, in and of itself, that's simply not violence. But I began to suspect, however, that when you start, that the, the, the reason for making this bizarre argument that speech by itself is violence is that it can let you then flip things around and say, okay, these Antifa thugs here who are violent, their violence is just speech. Yes. Your speech is violence and my violence is speech. Yeah, it, it's justifying, you know, this crazy, uh, you know, reaction there. And we have to be, you know, careful where we let this, you know, go um, because we are not fully educating people. And I think the other disturbing trend you see is recently poll after poll that comes out and asks students about the First Amendment. They don't know what the First Amendment actually means and they don't know what speech is protected and what speech not. And that's a very dangerous thing. We're not even teaching basic civics and history anymore, you know, in I don't even know if we're doing it in high school anymore, but it's definitely they lose it when they go to college. 
Yeah, well, well, groups like uh, IS Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, and uh, ACTA, the American College of Trustees and Alumni, have done wonderful polls where they ask people simple civics questions, uh, and they find how pathetically uh, high school kids and college kids perform. And my personal favorite is that at very shishi, prestigious universities like Duke, when they go and they uh, they test freshmen and seniors, they discover that. In many places, the seniors are even more ignorant than the freshmen, which is to say what little they came in knowing as freshmen, a lot of it got lost because, of course, in their four years, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, they didn't get even the most basic things. And so pathetic questions like, what are the three branches of government are simply beyond their capacity. Yeah, and that and that's one of the things that we cover every day at the Leadership Institute's Campus Reform is this level of indoctrination that these kids in, in many cases are, you know, top performers in great high schools around the country. They go to college. They're paying, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 dollars for this education and they come out worse off on the other end because they have been so indoctrinated. They have only learned one side of the story and they have been, you know, it's been so jammed down their throat that if you don't, you know, agree with this point of view, you are somehow a monster. Well, let's go back to the sure. uh, to speaking of college reform. Let's go back to the the actual study of student fees uh, that it did that's so valuable. Um, we've talked about some of the groups that get money from this. Uh, but let's talk about some of the uh, actual entities and programs uh, that got funding on campus. Okay. Uh, I see that the Boynton Health Facility uh, there at UW uh, got a very large sum of money. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, this is one of, you know, uh, uh, many ones. Again, they got, you know, they, they charge us for an fee. And when you charge it out by 50,000, you know, students or so, it, it ends up being, you know, millions of dollars. And I think in, in this one, if I remember correctly, it was a, you know, the, the fee would also can cover hormone therapy, IUDs, birth control, and everything else. And as you can imagine, you know, at least from, we hear from conservative students cross country all the time that don't agree with a fee like this. They don't, they don't necessarily agree based on their personal religious views, views or, or otherwise that they should be automatically paying for everybody to have birth control or hormone therapy, you know, or whatever else it is. It's also kind of ironic because under the current climate, a number of these college kids still are on their parents' insurance and don't need this fee anyways, yet we're charging everybody this fee and, and wrapping it up. I I mean, Duke University, I think, had another one in 2003 where they, you know, were funding any uh, students' gender reassignment surgery, you know, and things of that nature. And there are a lot of questions. Uh, is this the university's role to fund this? Sure. Uh, now, at UC Berkeley, campus reform talked about uh, uh, locker rooms. And this obviously this could be the uh, and it was for, for general gender neutral locker rooms. Now, Correct. we could certainly understand that there could be a place for having some facility like this. But again, when it's easy, free money and other people's money, uh, we don't tend to spend that very carefully, do we? Uh, no. And, you know, this is like many things I think that, you know, you guys covered Influence Watch that the government does. I, I think we're looking at a multi-million dollar bathroom. Now, I, I think there's a lot of places where you could install a bathroom for much less. Um, and so this is just kind of a how this gets out of control, you know. I guess it's a couple cents here, a dollar here by, you know, a few students. But when you add it up, it's a large pot of money. And suddenly they have more money than they know what, you know, to do with. Uh, the, you know, there are other examples, you know, that we that we covered at, you know, campus reform, for example, 
The University of New England has a diversity leadership scholarship or certificate that if you are a student and you complete 20 hours of programming, they give you this certificate in social justice programming. Now, it every student pays in the student fees, you know, and they pay for this thing. And it, as part of the certificate, not only do you have to go to some seminars, but you also have to support the university's other diversity, you know, programs, you know, the LBGDQ you know, center, a lot of the, you know, other diversity series lecture, you know, series and the safe space workshops. Now, there are students that are like, this is crazy. One, they don't agree with the social justice movement, you know, in general, but the, or especially the safe space initiatives, but now they're funding it for everybody. And we're somehow giving these people certificates in it. Um, this is just, you know, another way um, of doing this. Now, I will say it isn't all bad. There are some students out there that, that have seen the problem and are trying to rise to the occasion. There is a group of conservative students, like, you know, for example, last, you know, academic year at Rutgers University that read the fine print and the student fees and realized that the daily student newspaper at Rutgers gets majority of their funding from the student fees. There is a $11.25 student fee that every student pays, but this is an opt-in fee. The only way to get out of this fee, you can, and this is what these students try to do, they try to educate the student body on what this fee was and how to get out, get out of it. But the only way to get out of this fee is you have to do it prior to paying your tuition and you must email the public the, the publication in order to receive you know, a refund. That's a very complicated process. And again, when you're a student and you're getting your financial, you know, your loan, or your financial aid check or whatever it is, and you're writing a, a fee, you know, for, you know, somewhere like $10,000 or more, are you really looking at the details of the $11.25 fee? And more or less, you have to either go in and subtract that amount from the overall check you pay or email the publication and say, would you please refund, you know, my student fee? And I don't know how many of those emails even got returned, you know, or processed. And, and that's how this process is now. But let's just take that out. The Rutgers student body is somewhere, you know, into 40, 50,000, you know, students. So you take that 11, you know, um, dollar, 11, 25 cents fee per semester divided by the students. You're talking about over a million dollars a year. Over a million dollars a year is funding a student paper that in many cases, a lot of students aren't reading. This is crazy. But, you know, if, if the paper is successful and needed on campus, there should be a way that they can sell copies or sell sponsorship, you know, in, in the- Or in advertising. The right. You know, or advertising mm -hmm. thing. But every student on, on campus is paying the $11.25 for a paper that I'm sure the majority of them don't read. And this is how we get, you know, to these, this point. Well, uh, let's step back here and sure. uh, look at the bigger question. Uh, should the fees just be eliminated completely? How, how should- what do you think is the best way for them to be handled? I mean, this has always confused me because I certainly understand that there are certain things that the, you know, the student body needs. Buildings, you know, um, salaries, you know, things like that. But I thought that's what you were paying when you set a tuition price. I thought your tuition was paying for the facilities on campus to pay the teachers, you know, and everything else. What these fees have become, though, in many cases, is backdoor ways for universities to raise more money. So you've seen over the years um, state legislatures that have an influence on the, on the cost of tuition or governors say, that's it. We're going to try to solve this problem. We're going to freeze tuition. That's great. They freeze tuition. But what the university doesn't stop spending. So what they do is just enact these fees, you know, on the backside. So, yeah, in many cases, I think we should eliminate these because remember what these these are going. These are funding a bunch of things that might not be needed on campus or can be solved by the free market. They're funding, for example, the student gym you know, on campus that I'm sure not every student uses. And in some cases, these gym fees are mandatory $50 a semester fees. 
if there is that much of a need for a gym on campus, I'm sure that Gold Gym or Planet Fitness would have no problem building a gym right off site and students can join it you know, as they need. And that's a free market solution. And that gym probably will have better equipment and be kept more up to date with the latest fitness technology because they want to stay in business. You know, some of the other fees we saw in the studies that we did were, uh, I think at the uh, there was the bulldog taxi at one of them, a taxi service that cut the rate in half for students to come home from the bar at the end of the night, you know, to 50%. Most students didn't even know it existed. They're funding this fee and didn't use it. And I don't, I don't understand the need for this taxi system because it seems to me that Uber or Lyft have solved this problem. There is an economic and easy way to get home from the bar, you know, afterwards and the free market again has solved this problem. And so I think that's what we need to look for is there's a lot of like many things in government wasted spending here. And yes, I think it's great that we allow the First Amendment and freedom of association to flourish on college campus. And students should, should really be able to start just about any group they want. But if the, if the group is needed on campus and there's enough demand for it, then these students can meet and use the facilities together or raise money privately or seek from private charities and nonprofits and other donations the money needed to bring speakers to campus, you know, and things like that. I don't know that the, that the student body or these students has to subsidize this. I think if you ask most college students out there, hey, would you like a couple of these speakers to come to campus or funnel these group, or would you rather save $1,000 or more a year on your tuition? I think the majority of them would say they'd rather save the money. Yep. The um, if I'm a student uh, on campus, uh, are there things that I should be trying to do? One one easy thing it seems obvious to me is that I should be demanding complete transparency about where the monies are going because we all know from our college years, you know, little cliques often will take over student government and then they help their they they shovel the money to their pals. That may help to explain the huge disparities in what different groups are getting. And if that were completely transparent, uh, we, people would be able to protest if it was outrageous, and probably the transparency would even deter some of uh, the favoritism that's going on now. Yeah, I think I, I think transparency is always a good thing, and this, you know, and the, and I would encourage all students. And this is one of the things that we try to support through leadership of campus reform. Is students will often say, "Look at the, you know, the devil in the details. Looking at what their student government spending money on." Or there are they are a part of student government and they have a problem and they'll send us a tip or they'll want to write the story up, which is great. And I have one example of that is we got a tip, you know, earlier this year from students at the universe, uh, the SUNY Albany, you know, in New York, you know, chapter. Their student government spent five thousand dollars to send six members of the student government to a diversity conference in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Now, the great thing about this and what made so many students on campus, you know, mad is there also was the same conference. There was a meeting coming up in New York that they could have gone that wouldn't have involved all the plane flights, everything else. But when it got more disturbing and these students demanded some transparency and looked into what this $5,000 trip cost for this, they noticed, I'm sorry, that was not the trip. There's just $5,000, I think, in spending in like hotel and taxi cab fees. Now, the majority of the Uber fees were not going from the hotel to the conference. They were going from the hotel to the French Quarter, and they were at nighttime. So the, yes. the, the university and the student fees for pay were, were most likely paying for these student government officers to have a great time at Mardi Gras and go bar hopping. 
That is not what the intention, I don't think, of those student fees when they were you know, um, taken from all the students was. And there was no control here. This would have been one, it's, if there's a need to go to the diversity conference, okay, but why aren't you going to the one in your own state where presumably you would be networking with students around your own community and things like that, rather than going on what amounted to, it seems like here, a paid Mardi Gras vacation where the student government you know, officers had no problem voting in a fee to enrich themselves and create their own great experience. Well, it, frankly, you, that sounds like great job job training for future members of Congress oh, yeah, exactly. uh, going on junkets around the world of no value, but great expense. Uh, well, um, thanks so much, uh, Brian, for joining us this week and for all of the great work that Leadership Institute and its campusreform.org uh, news site has done on this issue. Uh, I hope uh, that both students and state legislators uh, will study all these uh reports carefully and, and think about how they can make things better on campus because God knows campuses are not one of our America's success stories. Right. And I and thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I'm happy to come on and talk about it. And I do think you're, a key to this is going to be having students, taxpayers, you know, uh, and alumnus hold the university accountable and hold their state legislature accountable. When it comes to the, you know, the student fee issue, legislatures can't have an influence and should. Uh, and anybody who's interested in this topic can continue to follow these stories at, the, at campusreform.org. So thanks so much. Thank you. Brian. Uh, that is our show for this week. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of the podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays for Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.